1: And so Deborah was a judge, and she was a prophetess, but we'll see later in chapter 5, verse 7, that she called herself really a mother to Israel. She was like a mother to Israel, and I love that, because when you think of a mother, you think of somebody who is always there somebody who is nurturing somebody who is there when you're crying on you know you're you're broken hearted and you can always climb up in a mother's lap and you can cry and she's always there to, to to rub your hair and to rub your head and to wipe away the tears and to offer soft words of encouragement How can I ever say?
0: Welcome, everyone, to today's edition of Truth in Christ Radio with Pastor Rob Kellogg. Some consider it unexpected for God to raise up a woman as a prophetess. But the New Testament makes it clear that God grants the gift of prophecy to women also, and they are to practice it appropriately. Deborah was a woman greatly used by God, and she was also a woman who respected the people God put in authority over her. It's God's sovereignty that allows him to use who he wants to accomplish his purpose. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's lesson.
1: And we continue, God has a way of exposing us, and he will expose us publicly if he has to. He doesn't want to do that. I think God wants to minister to us privately and personally so that we don't have to go through what we see, Some even pastors, uh, going through horrible things publicly. And churches dissolving, and people's hearts being crushed, and it's a horrible thing. And so we need to pray for the pastors. I'd appreciate your prayer for me, uh, uh, and pray for all the pastors in Calvary Chapels, and even the, the the churches down the street here. Pray for all those men that that God would keep them the way He wants them. He wants to be them to be like a firebrand in His hand, and I want to be that way too. I want to be someone that God can pour Himself into and I would be empty as much as possible. And so, uh I think you can understand that and that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. So let's go on to verse 2. It says, "So the Lord sold them. He sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor." And the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth, Hagoyim. Now this Jabin, king of Canaan, this may actually be more of a title than it is an actual name. His name probably wasn't Jabin, it was probably something else. But just like we saw with Caesars, the Caesars, the Herods, and the Xerxes in the Medes and the Persians, these, these names were really titles more than physical names. And so this land of Hazor, which Jabin was the king of, is is about eight and a half miles north of the Sea of Galilee. When we were there a few weeks ago, we had an opportunity to drive right by Hazor. And Hazor is actually a tell. A tell is a, it looks like a hill. And you you see these in Israel as you're driving. You see these tells uh, everywhere. They're they're, they're in many places. And you you can see uh, Hazor, is there and it's a it's a civilization that's been built on another city and it, and it, and as it gets destroyed it, it just keeps getting built upon and so a tell is is like a city that's been built upon a city that's been built upon a city built upon a city and uh Jericho was a good example of that Jer- Jericho was a, a tell And and so was uh, Hazor and other places as well. And so when it says in verse 3, The children of Israel, they cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. 20 years kept them in submission, and certainly having 900 chariots of iron, uh, that's something that the children of Israel just could not compete with. God forbid them to have horses, to have these big armies with horses, and he certainly forbid them to have chariots. Because had they had these things, they would have boasted in their military prowess, and, and God would have not received the glory. Because you know that many of the battles in the Bible, God used and did a lot with very, very little. In fact, we'll see in a few weeks in the, in the life of Gideon how he had a very large army, and God had to whittle it down to just a couple hundred guys. Uh, against an enemy that was very formidable in the thousands. And so God doesn't need a lot to accomplish a lot. He can use a few. And you know, I I long to see the Lord do that even more uh, because God doesn't need big things. He doesn't need big things. He can do great things with very sig- insignificant people, people that aren't um that don't see themselves as something that great. He always delights to use the the underdog. He likes to use the person who doesn't have any confidence over their flesh. He, he loves to use people like that. And notice that the children of Israel cried. They cried, and their cries were were not that God would forgive their sins. Notice the difference here, because they cried. Why did they cry? Because of the 900 chariots and the oppression. But do you see in that verse any desire to be delivered of their own sin and to be forgiven? There really isn't. And this is really what the Bible calls... Worldly sorrow. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, and worldly sorrow is just mad and upset because I got caught, or mad or upset because I'm going through the consequence of what I've done wrong, but there's no change of heart, and that is the difference. When a person gets busted and it truly changes their life, um, it is a a godly sorrow. More often than not, especially if you're a Christian and you get busted, you're, your heart is broken, you're, you're, you're sick of your sin, and you're like, God, I am totally done with this. I'm so sick of it, and you're sick of it, and now I am really, really, really sick of it. Have you ever gotten to that place before where you're really sick of your sin? We have to come to that place. Otherwise, chances are we'll never turn from whatever it is, right? And so, in Second Corinthians chapter 7 Beginning in verse 8, this is what Paul says to the Corinthians. He said, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, he's speaking about his first letter in 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same letter made you sorry, though only for a while. But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So again, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 8 through 11. So he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us, excuse me, in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. And he speaks of the, the, the evidence, really, of their godly sorrow. What is it? He says, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation uh, of of the sin, and what fear, what, what, what reverence, and what awe, and what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication, and all these things, notice, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And he's talking about a matter of, of a man sleeping with another uh, his mother's uh, his dad's wife or he's speaking about a very ugly situation there in Corinth but so godly sorrow and worldly sorrow and this is really what we see Israel doing is really not having godly sorrow under repentance but having sorrow and just uncomfortable in the in the circumstances that they're in it has been said by one author, it says, "...to ask God for comfort and not cleansing is only to sow seeds of selfishness that will eventually produce another bitter harvest." It's very interesting, isn't it? Because if we don't turn, if, if the children of Israel would use this opportunity to turn from their sin, they would have been in a much better place because true repentance, there's nothing that happens at it. There's no consequence that's coming later on down the road. It's pure and, it, and there's, there's life. But when we do not do that, we're sowing seeds of selfishness that will eventually produce another bitter harvest. It's sort of like taking the test over again. You know, when I was in kindergarten, here's a, here's a little tidbit about myself, not that you really care, but it fits the story here. <laughs> when I was a kid in kindergarten... I, I would go into the school, and I hated school, and so I would go into kindergarten, and as soon as my teacher, because I lived really close by to the school, and I would go into the school, and as soon as she took role, and she turned her head, I would zap out of the, out of the room, and she didn't even know I was gone for quite a while, and I would spend my whole day in the park across the street from my house, and, and I had, as a result of that, I had to take kindergarten. Can you believe that? I wasn't mature enough, they said I was immature for, first, or for kindergarten, so I had to be held back, and I had to do kindergarten again, and I can hear you laughing, even though all of you are muted, I can hear some of you laughing right now, and so uh, I had to take it over again. I had to redo it again, and that's exactly what the children of Israel, and what we do when we don't repent truly from something, we're going to go through it again. It's just a matter of time, so it really behooves us, doesn't it, to really get serious with the Lord and say, Lord... I want to do this one time. I want to turn from this and be done with it. In fact, notice the difference between what Israel did and what David did after his sin with Bathsheba. What does it record for us in Psalm 51, verse 10? I would encourage you to read that whole psalm, but in verse 10 he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. There is the mark, there is the hallmark of a man who has truly repented, we know that David cracked like an egg when he got when Nathan, uh, by the Spirit of God, brought him great conviction. David truly did repent, and he never did that ever again. It was true repentance, and so therefore, this is the kind of repentance that the Israel needed back at this time, because uh, David wasn't even nowhere on the scene at this point. This was hundreds of years before David would be born, and and so let's look at verse four. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, so she's a prophet, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. And so Deborah was a judge and she was a prophetess, but we'll see later in chapter 5 verse 7 that she called herself really a mother to Israel. She was like a mother to Israel, and I love that because when you think of a mother, you think of Somebody who was always there, somebody who was nurturing, somebody who is there when you're crying on, you know, you're you're broken hearted, and you can always climb up in a mother's lap and you can cry, and she's always there to 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 rub your hair and to rub your head and to wipe away the tears and to offer soft words of encouragement. And so Deborah really saw herself as this. And I want to talk about something here at this point because Deborah obviously was a woman, and in this culture, the men really dominated the culture. And God has a role for men and women. He really does. And those roles are distinct and they're wonderful when they're embraced. But unfortunately, we see in in, in our culture today, many women, uh, and, and to no fault of their own as long as their hearts are right, Whenever there is a void of leadership, a woman will gladly fit into that position, even though it's a position that she really ought not to be in, it. and it has nothing to do with whether a woman can. We know that women are very able. In fact, they're um I I've been admitting and will continue to admit that my wife is smarter than I am in so many ways, right? But God hasn't called her to be a pastor of a church. God has called the men to be a pastor. And, and you know, thank God her heart is to help me in this ministry, to support me. And that's a wonderful role. And And I thank her for that. And when men and women embrace those roles that God has given us, the men are to be the head of their own homes, not the women. And again, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with... Uh, strength or ability or spiritual capability has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with God's order of things. So why, why is Deborah here now in this position of being a judge over Israel? Let me suggest to you that the children of Israel had gotten into such a period of spiritual decline that the men were completely sold out and there was really not a man in the area that God could put his finger on and say, I want you to lead my people. I want to speak to your heart. But God probably found no man, because if He had, He wouldn't have called Deborah. And De- so this is not Deborah's fault. This is really an indictment, really against the children of Israel. Again, God's not a chauvinist, and neither am I. Uh, but the Bible says that that God creates uh, roles for men and women, and when we both embrace those roles, there is a great, great peace. There's a great unity. Everything is at peace, <laughs> relatively. And and we see in our culture now that not really happening. We see uh, men and women in roles that they were not created to be in, and that creates a lot of strife. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 3, uh, because uh, this is really something that God was speaking to Isaiah's heart uh, before the coming judgment from Babylon on Judah and Jerusalem specifically. And let me read to you just the first 12 verses because the verse that we really want to land on is in verse 12, but let's just look at it. It says, the Lord says to Jeremiah or to Isaiah, he says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet and the diviner and the elder. Notice what God is taking away from them because of their idolatry. He's taking away from them their, their very sustenance and the men that, that God had raised up. The judge and the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of the fifty, and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter, which God obviously didn't approve of, but that's what they were into. And so he says, I'm taking that all away, and I will give children to be their princes. And babes shall rule over them, and the people will be oppressed. And this is not a good thing, God is saying. This is, not, this is really the result of their uh, disobedience. This is what God's going to allow. This is a, a bad sign when children rule over their parents and over a culture. And so he goes on and he says, The people, verse 5, will be oppressed, and every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder. And the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest, saying, I will not cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah is fallen. And again, these are the words of God. Because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory, the look on their countenance witnesses against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul. For they have brought evil upon themselves." so God says, say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings, which is good. But then alternately, woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. And here's the verse, as for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. And so whenever a woman is raised up to rule over over the people, that is not a good thing. And again, it's not a reflection about the woman. The woman, because Deborah was a very godly woman and God was very pleased with her. He was not angry with her at all. I think he was upset with the men that there was not a man. And you'll see later on how Deborah responds, and we've already seen this, as we read through the chapter, of her heart's desire to really give that that glory, if you will, to Barak. That that was her heart because she knew where her role in this whole thing was. And she, her desire was that God would get the glory and that Barak would be the one next. But as we'll see in the song afterwards, we're going to see that Deborah, and again, this is not her fault, but the, the song is really giving Deborah more of the of the preeminence other than God and again it's not her fault it's just the way it came out because she really had the faith where Barak did not she was the one who had direction where Barak did not and he could have had these things if he was submitted unto the Lord but for some reason he wasn't and he was scared and unwilling And God found in her a woman who was strong and very willing and listening to the Lord. And that's all that matters to God. He can use anything. He can use a donkey. And he did, didn't he? He used a donkey to rebuke Balaam. And so, but again, nothing against Deborah and certainly nothing against women. But there are roles of men and women and we we got to, and that's a good thing for us today. Men, what are you doing in your homes? Are you the head of your home or is your wife the head of the home? You know, um, you know, you should have the say, you should have the final say over things. Your wife and you should pray together. You should make decisions together, but the ultimate the, when it really comes down to it, that decision is yours, and you have to make that decision. And so make the decision with meekness and with gentleness and listening to your wife, because God has given you to her, given her to you. It would be foolish to make decisions without ever consulting our wives. Do you really want to know their heart and their thoughts? Maybe they've got something better. But ultimately, God's going to reward you for what you do according to His will. But we need to listen, guys. And we need to take that, that role in our house very seriously. And we can't uh, give that away to anyone. And when we do, and if we do it rightly, and we do it in the meekness that, that God would have us to, your wife will willingly submit to you. And especially if you do it with a right heart, she won't be bitter and angry. And if you're not heavy-handed and acting like, you know, Tarzan, you know, the king of the jungle, you know, she's going to respect you and there's, there's going to be peace because the order has been reestablished. And so we live in a culture where that's gotten all whacked out of, it's all whacked. <laughs> it's all strange now. But going on to verse 5, it says, And she, Deborah, would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. There's even a tree named after her. How's that? between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So they would come up to her to have matters discussed and for her to give direction. And again, why wasn't a man doing that? Maybe because there wasn't a man to do that. And again, that's really an indictment against the men in that culture at this time in history So, then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedish and Naphtali. So Barak was from Naphtali, which is up there, that land right to the west of of the Sea of Galilee and going up a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee. And so she said to him, and notice, has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun? I didn't have time to do this tonight, but when we were in Israel recently, I got this really wonderful picture of Mount Tabor. It looks like a camel's hump. And it's like this. And it's a a big mountain. And it's right there in the Jezreel Valley, along the Valley of Megiddo, in that area up there in the north. And this is where uh, this event took place. And so 10,000 men, she says, go and take 10,000 men of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun and go against him. Go against this Sisera. And against you, I will deploy Sisera. Notice, God is saying this through Deborah. Against you guys, I'm going to bring Sisera against you. And he's the commander of Jabin's army and his, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. And again, the river Kishon is a river right at the base of Mount Carmel. I had another picture I wanted to show to you tonight, but it's a, uh, it's right at the base of Mount Carmel, where uh, you remember that Samuel defeated the prophets of Baal. He faced off with those 450 prophets. And you remember the event that at the end of that uh, contest, if you will, that Elijah uh, with other men, they they took those 450 prophets of Baal and they killed them right right down at the bottom of that hill. There's a stream. It's dried up today. You can't see it. But um, at the time, there was a river going through there. And you can still see where it used to be. Uh, And that's where he slaughtered those 450 prophets right there at the base. And so now, much further back in history now, we see Sisera coming against uh, Deborah and Barak and the armies right at that same location. And so notice what Barak said. So here she is prophesying, telling him what's coming. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go." And, you know, when I read that, it kind of pains me as a
0: man. Uh, because I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Judges. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140.